Good morning. We are back in 2 Thessalonians today. And apparently the persecutions were so severe in Thessalonica that some believers there were terrified or alarmed that they were already in the day of the Lord. And so Paul feels compelled to calm them down and to correct their misinterpretation of events. He tells them the day of the Lord is still yet in the future. And he tells them, do not panic. Do not be alarmed about this. New American Standard says, do not be shaken from your composure. Of course, that is really good advice for every Christian in any and every situation. And we should take that to heart as a general instruction for our lives, no matter what we're going through. God wants you to have peace. If you live with any level of alarm or panic, God wants to take that from you. The word of the Lord for you and for me is, let not your heart be troubled. The Lord says, in quietness and trust is your strength. Even in personal crisis or in national or world crisis, God wants you and me to have calm and trusting hearts keep our composure, no matter what. Well, in this passage, the Thessalonians are especially or particularly admonished to not be alarmed about the day of the Lord. And we should not be alarmed about it either or alarmed about anything associated with end time events or the end of the age or anything in the future. Jesus said, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Now the end times, the end of the age, will come with tribulation and trauma. seems to me the Bible is very clear on that. Uh, But we of all people should be the least nervous about world events, uh, the least panicked by rumors of upheaval or disasters. For a couple of reasons. First, the day of the Lord will play out just as the Lord ordains it. (laughs) Our God is in charge. So we are to be anxious for nothing, including the day of the Lord and all the end time events. God has it. God's in charge. He's got the whole world in his hands like we sang this morning. He's got all the end time events in his hands. Secondly, for the believer, all end time trauma and tribulation will be resolved into our glory at the coming of Jesus. No matter what is happening to us now, no matter what will ever happen to us, we have one sure destiny. Resurrection and glory and safety with our Lord Jesus forever. The alarm among these believers at Thessalonica was clearly about the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord refers to that future day, a future cataclysmic day, when God will set things right with his creation. It's a day of wrath for the unbelieving and a day of salvation for God's people. 
We just saw this a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord Jesus will come with his mighty angels with blazing fire, inflicting vengeance, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel. But for believers, it is the day our Lord comes from heaven for us. If you read carefully verses 1 and 2, you will see that Paul definitely equates the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together with him with the day of the Lord. It says those two, those are the same, same thing. <clears throat> so although the end times may have much persecution and testing and even martyrdom, the day Jesus comes for us is a day of relief, resurrection, and glory, and so we should not live in a state of alarm, but like Jesus said, rather than be alarmed, lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. However, Scripture does teach that the transition from this age to the next is a time of great trauma. The earth shakes and the seas roar. Uh, there are signs in the sky, panic on the earth, people dying of fright, People running for cover. And because of these and many, many other prophecies of end-time trauma, whenever things look bad, we can be quick to say, this for sure is the end, or this for sure is the day of the Lord. And Christians have proclaimed the end of the age during various persecutions and troubles all throughout history. It was common to believe that, that this was the day of the Lord or the end times during World War I and then during World War II, uh, certainly some after 9-11, uh, whenever there's massive earth, earthquakes uh, or wars around the world or particularly in the Middle East, there are always some who say this for sure is the end. Well, this uh, premature belief was something like what was going on with these believers at Thessalonica. They mistakenly thought that the day of the Lord had come, or literally the day of the Lord, they, they, they thought that the day of the Lord was present, or they were alarmed that the day of the Lord is present. It's right now. Now, of course, as we have taught here, Jesus did tell us to look for his return. Paul told us to wait expectantly for God's Son from heaven and we are admonished to understand the times and to be ready for his coming but he also Jesus also taught us to wait for his return in a state of peace and composure and confidence and without alarm I just quoted for you a verse uh, from Matthew or Mark thirteen seven. you will hear of wars and rumors of wars but see to it that you are not alarmed by these things. These things must happen, Jesus said, but the end is still yet to come. So Jesus taught that disturbing things will happen, but Jesus exhorted us to not be upset or alarmed. And Paul was teaching the Thessalonians, and he's teaching us the same exact thing. He, asked that, he said, we ask you to not be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has begun. One of the marks 
of almost all false teaching is that it creates alarm or panic in people's hearts and in the church. 2 Timothy 2.18, Paul warned of men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. They upset people in the church. So when someone comes uh, into the church or someone in the church spreads a teaching through the church that creates a sense of panic or crisis, beware. The message of Jesus, the message of Paul is do not panic. Do not be alarmed. Keep your composure. And Paul tells them not to be alarmed by the false message or we might say the premature message that they are in the day of the Lord even if it comes by a spirit. He's going he's to say even if it comes by three different things and he begins with a spirit. Even if it comes by a spirit. I think this means or by someone claiming to have received this message from a spirit or perhaps in a spiritual dream or vision. He's saying, don't be impressed by that. Don't be deceived by that. Secondly, don't, be, don't believe it or don't be deceived even if it comes by a spoken word or probably what is meant by this, a prophetic word, a word of prophecy. If someone claims to have received a special knowledge or have a prophetic utterance that this is the day of the Lord, Paul said, ignore that too. Third, do not believe it even if you get a letter supposedly from me saying that we are now in the day of the Lord. I mean, Paul had, which, which we're going to see, he had taught them some things that must happen first and he, he's just saying, you know, I'm not going to send you a letter that's going to be the opposite of what I, just, what I taught you when I was, was with you guys. So even if you get a letter that looks like or seems like it's from me, don't, don't be deceived by that. In verse 3, he ends with saying, let no one deceive you in any way. And then Paul tamps down their alarm by emphasizing that they are not in the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet, and he gives two things that must happen first or must precede the Lord's coming and will clearly mark that day. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless or until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul said, first, the rebellion must come first. And he calls it the rebellion. Not just any rebellion, but the rebellion. Uh, this rebellion obviously has to be totally unique. Uh, something like we've never seen before. It's one of a kind. It will be a rebellion on such a grand scale that it will be unmistakable. And it does seem like from other scriptures that many who call themselves Christians, many who are in the church and would identify at least at some point in their lives as Christians, will be drawn into this. First Timothy 4, 1 says the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow these deceiving or deceptive spirits. Jesus said at that time many will turn away from the faith. I think 2 Timothy 3 gives a good idea of what this end times rebellion will look like. 
Paul said, but understand this, that in the last days, there will be difficult times. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, irreconcilable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I think we see those things today, and Paul probably saw them without doubt in his day, but he's saying that in, in the last days, the rebellion will be massive. It will be an intensification of these very things, the, these rebellious attitudes and hearts that he described, the proud hearts that he describes here. There will be a massive magnification of these attitude, attitudes uh, toward God in the end times. People will throw off all restraint and will openly proclaim their hatred and rebellion against God on a worldwide scale. Psalm 2, I believe, describes this. The kings of the earth will rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains. In other words, let us break God's chains. Let's, Let's break the chains of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and throw off their shackles. Paul said, the day of the Lord will not happen until this kind of rebellion comes first. So that's something that, uh, a sign, or it's something that must happen before, and until that happens, Paul said, it's not the day of the Lord yet. Second, which is also in verse 3, The day of the Lord will not happen until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This massive rebellion against God will have a leader, and Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. doesn't seem to me that Paul is speaking figuratively here, so he's a man, not just a force. He's empowered by Satan, but he's not Satan. He is the man of lawlessness, and he's at the forefront of, of this worldwide rebellion just prior to the day of the Lord. His title is, he's the man of lawlessness, meaning he is lawless or characterized by lawlessness. He will submit to no authority, to no law. He considers himself absolutely above the law of God, and he will lead the people of the world down a path of rebellion against God's laws. He's also called the son of destruction or the man who is born for destruction. He will not only lead the world and its people into destruction, but he himself will be destroyed. Verse 9, the Lord Jesus Christ will kill this man and bring him to nothing or some translations say annihilate him. He is identified by this monstrous pride and directly claiming the place of God. In verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So he, he opposes the true and living God, and yet he himself will demand 
that he is treated like God. You don't have to know a whole lot about history to know that there's a lot of dictators down, uh, through, throughout history that have claimed to be God or claimed to be treated like God, and even just in this past century like Stalin or Hitler or Mao. But certainly this uh, man of lawlessness will do that in a more extreme way. And he takes his seat in the temple of God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but again, this doesn't seem to me to be a figurative expression, and that would mean a rebuilt temple. Although some really good Bible teachers take this uh, temple to be a reference to the church, but the main point that that Paul puts uh, out here is that this man will clearly make himself out to be God or take the place of God and demand to be worshipped in places or in the place where God is worshipped. And again, many world leaders have exerted this kind of monstrous pride. The man of lawlessness will just carry that pride to an unprecedented extreme. I mean, even today in North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un considers himself to be a deity and the kids in the schools are trained to worship him and to uh, say a prayer of thanks to him for their food and things like that. It's unbelievable the amount of uh, kind of deity worship that's even going on right in our day. Of course, that will be nothing compared to this man of lawlessness who claims to be God. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, no, we don't because we weren't there when Paul was with the Thessalonians. So there's a little bit of obscurity about some of the things in this passage because Paul refers to some things that he told them, and we aren't told exactly what it was that he told them. Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may reveal be revealed in his time. Well, again, no, we don't know, Paul, what is restraining him now because we weren't there when you told the Thessalonians exactly what that, who or what that was. But the point is clear for us. There is something or someone that is holding back this man of lawlessness now so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Again, we are not told who or what is holding him back and there are many theories and some of them better than others but ultimately I would submit to you that it has to be God. God has to be behind whatever person or or, uh, entity God has to be behind it because again we sang this morning he's got the whole world in his hands he has all times and seasons in his hands so at the right time It says, or at the proper time, God will remove his hand of restraint and this man will be revealed and then these end time events will develop quickly. Then verse seven, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So Paul says, yes, this has to do with with things that are gonna happen right before the Lord Jesus Christ returns from, from heaven. But he says, I want you to know that this this secret power of lawlessness is already at work. 
this malevolent spiritual power that will be someday fully manifest in the Antichrist is already here and already at work. And so you and I are already up against this force. We are. And that's why it's hard to be a Christian. That's why you find yourself, as it were, swimming against the tide, swimming against the tide of, of other people's opinions and swimming against the tide of our culture. There is a force at work against us and against you. It's why life feels like a fight. Uh, it's why you feel alone at times in the Christian life in standing up for Jesus and for the Word of God and for righteousness. There is a power presently working against you and against Christ and Paul calls it the mystery of lawlessness or the secret force or power of lawlessness and you feel that and I do too. Our experience of evil men and evil power and powers of darkness working in rebellion against God is real and it is pervasive but it is restrained. It's restrained now. That's what Paul says here. It would be much worse if it were not. I said a couple of weeks ago, if, if this power of evil was not restrained, you and I would be running for our lives right here in Ankeny. But this evil power, this power of lawlessness is restrained right now until God decides to take it out of the way. But some, and someday this restraint will be removed or taken out of the way. Verse 8, and then the lawless one, lawless one will be revealed. Now, I think it is a mistake for us to overly focus on who this person might be. We should know about him. We should know that he is coming. We, we should know that this is associated with the very end of the age. But I think it can be a mistake or a distraction for us to become overly obsessed about trying to figure out who this person might be. In my lifetime, I've heard dozens, maybe hundreds of speculations about who might be the Antichrist. And to some Christians, or maybe I'll say to some people in the church, this becomes their Christianity trying to figure out things about the Antichrist. Uh, they aren't absorbed with loving and serving Jesus Christ, but rather with who is the Antichrist and kind of delving into theories about who he might be, what nationality, what nation he's from, and all that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking about those things, considering those things, looking into Scripture and so forth. But it's certainly not something that should be uh, the... The, the focus or all-absorbing with our, our Christianity. And I think this is a mistake for a couple of reasons. First, it makes us look foolish because none of our speculations turn out to be that guy. And so it makes Christians look unwise or silly. And we should do everything we can to protect the integrity of the name of Christ and to live honorably and sensibly as Paul says, in this present life. But also, it's a mistake because Paul presents this as an unmistakable person. 
when the Antichrist, this lawless one, comes on the scene, no one will be saying, you know, do you think this guy maybe or might be the Antichrist? No, this, this man will lead the world with such an iron fist, with such a power over mankind, uh, and lead such an overt worldwide rebellion that no one will be wondering if he is that guy. But Paul's point here is that the day of the Lord will not happen until these two events take place. Hopefully, I haven't lost anybody, but what are these two events that must take place before Jesus comes back? The rebellion and the man of lawlessness. So, essentially, Paul is saying, don't get out over your skis, so to speak. Uh, Don't get too far ahead of yourselves. Uh, Don't think the day of the Lord is here before it is. We should be on watch. We should uh, expect this, but we should not be too premature in proclaiming, oh yeah, this for sure is, is the end of the age. The lawless one and the great rebellion are clearly events that happen at the very end of the age because they will be brought to an end by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But above all, Paul's word to us in this passage of Scripture, the thing that is on Paul's heart, the the purpose, the main intent of the Holy Spirit is do not panic. Do not live in a state of alarm or nervousness. Keep your composure because no matter how wicked or powerful this man is, the Lord Jesus will completely overpower him and destroy him at his coming. And that's what he says in verse 8. And then the lawless, one, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I'm glad I've got that kind of a savior. I love serving a Jesus with that kind of power and might. So ultimately, we should have no alarm about the day of the Lord or the coming rebellion or the Antichrist because Jesus is greater, far greater. And Jesus will slay the man of lawlessness. He will annihilate him and the world's wickedness when he comes. And he will do it by the breath of his mouth. It won't require some great effort by Jesus to kill this man. It won't be like Jesus and the Antichrist are in some prolonged battle that goes on and on and on and finally Jesus wins by just a hair. No, he kills him by the breath of his mouth. Our Savior is all-powerful and invincible and this is our confidence and hope in all crises in all days of evil, in all the trauma and tribulation 
and drama that goes on in our lives and in the world. We have an invincible, all-powerful Savior. I want you to listen to me as I read John's description of him from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and I saw a white horse that was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. His name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod, and he will unleash the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. And on his robe and on his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is this view of the Lord Jesus as victorious warrior and conquering king that calms our fears and bids our sorrows cease. And I, I hope that in part of your understanding, it's not the complete picture of Jesus, but I hope that a significant, uh, in-depth understanding that you have about who Jesus is is as a mighty, victorious warrior and conquering king. Some people only know about a meek and mild Jesus who would not ever have the power to vindicate us or save us. He is gentle and humble, but when he comes back, he comes with all power and authority, unleashed, totally revealed, no, no more concealed. He comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And our eternal safety is in the hands of this almighty Lord Jesus Christ. So we have no, fear, no need to fear anything in life or in death. All right, well, what should we take away from this? These are all things that we've covered already, but I want us to focus on them as we wrap up here. What should we take away? First, and this is the main point of the passage, we should not be agitated or fearful about the day of the Lord or about end times or about anything in our future. We are not to be a nervous people. We belong to God. We are loved and nothing can happen, can happen to us that can separate us from that love. So keep your composure, your peace, your confidence. You have a mighty, awesome Savior and he will come and save the day. Second, we should not be easily excited or overly presumptuous that every world crisis means this is the end. Now, someday those, those things are going to happen and it will be the end. And I, I don't mean that we shouldn't be aware or understand the times and look and see what's going on. But again, Jesus taught us to wait for his coming with a sense of composure and calmness and confidence. When you hear of all of these things, he, Jesus details all the end time trauma in, in, several different, in Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, all those things that you read about and, and you hear wars and revolutions and earthquakes and people claiming this and that. He said, see to it that you are not alarmed. 
These things must happen, but it is not the end yet. And that's essentially Paul's message to the Thessalonians. Third, we should not pay attention to anybody who teaches things about the day of the Lord that are not clearly taught by the apostles. I know prophecy can get really confusing, and, and people have, have taken truths in Scripture and, in my opinion, have extrapolated all kinds of wild things, I think, often just to hype people up, sometimes even to make them alarmed and nervous. And we need to be careful about that. We need to, to, to say, what does the Scripture actually say? What, what is clearly taught in the Scripture about the end times, about the day of the Lord, and about all of these things. And, you know, Paul said, see to it that you're not deceived about anything. That's a good warning. That's a really good warning. Don't be people who are easily deceived. So, where the scriptures are not clear or specific, it's, ne- it's never uh, good to go beyond that which is uh, clearly uh, written about the scripture. And there's a phrase uh, where uh, Paul says, I can't remember the passage right now, but he says, says we, we should not go beyond what is written. And that's just such a good thing to remember about a lot of teachings in the Christian life. Uh, a lot of people seem to love to go beyond what is written into other things because it's almost like they don't think what is written is quite good enough. So we're going to take it beyond there and turn it into something Something extra special. Well, we don't need to do that. The Word of God is living and powerful and active as it is written. Finally, we should live with complete confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ to conquer all evil and all evil people. Uh, When Jesus comes, all tribulation, all trial, all pain, and all death will turn to glory and resurrection for us. And so, our trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how much upheaval comes into our personal lives or no matter how much upheaval comes into the world. We know that we'll all be safe and happy together with Jesus forever. And that's our confidence. He is coming again. And he's going to fix everything permanently. He's going to restore all things. And that's our hope. We we live for that. We wait, wait for that. So that is our hope. Uh, it's the promise. It's the ultimate or the end promise of the gospel. It's the end game of the Christian life, so to speak. It's the goal. And uh, we can have complete confidence that it's going to happen. And, and the result of that is that we, we should walk around in this world. We should walk through life with this, with this deep sense of quietness and trust and peace and stability, and composure, saying no to all anxiety and panic, and we just, we live trusting in our living God and in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Why don't we stand up and close with prayer?